Philippians chapter 4 will be in verses 10 through 13. We are concluding our series, actually, in the next few weeks in the book of Philippians. We'll be in chapter 4 today, and next Sunday, Pastor Jeff will be doing the next section, and then I think uh, Sunday after that is our last time in Philippians. I trust that this has been helpful, God-glorifying series as we've learned about living worthy of the gospel, living an appropriate response to the wonder that Christ has died for our sins and been raised from the dead for our justification and our acceptance before God and all that that means. Um, I trust that this has served you well and glorified God in it. Today I'm excited about these verses, verses 10 through 13, probably some familiar verses, at least verse 13 is one that's often quoted. I believe the Lord has some things that he wants to speak to us through his word today. Uh, This section of scripture has ministered to my heart this week, and it's been my prayer that it would minister to you as well. So as we prepare to read God's word, let's pray and ask him to work this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word, your living word. We thank you that you bring life. Lord, that you bring existence out of nothing as you spoke and the universe was created and you are able to do anything you desire to do. And certainly, Lord, you love your people. Lord, you love all people and especially your people. And in light of that, Lord, we ask you to minister today to to minister to your people, to comfort them and draw them to yourself. Show them your goodness. Help them help us to live in you. For those that wouldn't know you, Lord, that you would show them your goodness and invite them and call them to yourself. We thank you for your living word. We thank you that you're here with us. We thank you, Lord, for your grace. For without your grace, I could not serve for a moment you or your precious people. So we thank you. We look to you. We ask you to be magnified through this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. As we've been seeing, Paul is concluding his letter here and addressing uh, different topics in conclusion. In this section, he wants to thank the Philippians for their generous gift, this section and next week's text as well. But as he does that, he wants to not only thank the Philippians, he wants to instruct them as well in how to live and how to think about things like finances and provision. And so as a faithful minister of the gospel who loves these dear people, he wrote verses 10 through 13, inspired by God and preserved in God's word for us today to enjoy. So let's read verse 10. It says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In every and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Philippians 4, 10 to 13, God's word. John D. Rockefeller was a 19th century billionaire. 
He made his money in oil, and he was probably the richest man ever. In today's dollars, his net worth would be about $230 billion. I believe that's about 10 times the richest man in the world right now. He once was asked, how much money is enough? He replied, just a little more. This is true. This attitude is true for billionaires and for those in poverty. We all want just a little more to be happy. Actually, in 1947, the median income in today's dollars was somewhere around $15,000 a year. So the median income has tripled since 1947. That's adjusted for inflation. So it's tripled since 1947. And yet the, the research on the happiness of Americans, measuring them in 1947 versus now, they've found that there is actually no difference in the level of happiness of Americans, though we have three times the income. Back in 1947, the little bit more people wanted was something like just a, an indoor toilet. If I could just get that indoor toilet in my house, then I'll be happy. Nowadays, it's not that, I don't think, for any of us. It's if I could just get that vacation home, then I'll be happy. This perspective of discontent eats away at all of us. And it's not just for material things. In the church as well. We can live with this attitude of discontent, and, and so we can bring it to church, and, and we can think if just the church were just a little bit bigger, then I'd be happy. Or if the church were just a little more evangelistic, then I'd be happy. Or if it just did a little better at youth ministry, or maybe a little more expressive in worship, or whatever it might be, then I'd be happy. This same attitude affects us in all realms. And contentment can seem like this vanishing mirage on the horizon, and which we run after, ever thirsty for a drink, only to find when we arrive upon the horizon, dust and emptiness. I think this reality applies to all of us to some degree, and some of us to a great degree. And yet God does not leave us there. He comes to us through Philippians 4, 10 to 13 to instruct us and to rescue us from this lifestyle of just a little bit more to be content. This lifestyle of discontent. And what I want to do this morning is just dig in here. I want to first follow through Paul's train of thought in these four verses just so we know what he's saying and how he's saying it. And then I want to just dig deeper into the topic and explore God's answer for discontentment. So look with me at verses 10 to 13. If we could put those up on the screen, that would be great. Paul, through this letter, has been instructing them about how to live worthy of the gospel. And up till now, he has not said really anything directly about their contribution. This letter was written in response to a letter that, or a request that came to Paul while he was in prison from the Philippians. Now, he's known these people for a while. He planted the church there in Philippi years before. They have contributed to him in the past. They have contributed to, actually, the, the collection for the Jerusalem churches and, and, and perhaps also to his ministry at one point earlier on. But they had not given in a while. And so he's responding to this generous gift that came to them with uh, probably Epaphroditus as he brought this request to them and this gift. So they, Epaphroditus had gone to, to bring this gift, to bless Paul, and also to ask Paul for help 
because they were having some unity problems, disunity in their church. And so Paul wrote this letter, and until now has not talked about the gift. And so at the beginning he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. He expresses to them this gratitude. He's, re he's rejoiced. He rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Paul was very excited about this gift. He, we, we wouldn't necessarily say rejoice in the Lord greatly. We might say, I was super jazzed at what, what you did in giving to us. Paul is, Paul is grateful to them for their contribution to his ministry. And he says that, uh, now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had not opportunity. So there was some time period where, where they were not able to give to him. We don't know why. It wasn't because they didn't want to. And it, it could have been that, that Paul, earlier on in his ministry, he was before he went to jail in Rome, he had journeyed to Jerusalem to bring a gift to the poor Jerusalem church. And this was a passion of Paul's. Uh, he believed that it was appropriate for the Gentile converts to give to the Jerusalem church as an expression of gratefulness for the heritage brought to them. Uh, and so he, he, they brought this gift. The, the church in Jerusalem was poor. And, and I, I, perhaps Paul had dedicated all giving to the Jerusalem church. And now that that gift had been delivered, and now later on Paul had uh, traveled to Rome and was in prison there, there was opportunity now for the uh, Philippians to give to Paul's ministry. So uh, it wasn't for lack of heart. It just was lack of opportunity. And he rejoices. He rejoices in this gift. But it's interesting to see what Paul does in verse 11 very quickly he transitions from expressions of gratitude, sincere gratitude, to, to help them understand and to qualify that gratitude. He wants them to not only know his gratitude, but his basic attitude towards financial provision and other sorts of provision. He wants to instruct his dear friends, even as he thanks them, about how to live in relationship to things like finances and other sorts of provision. He doesn't convey to them that, you know, he doesn't say something like, oh, I, I just thank you for giving this gift. For a matter of fact, I, my ministry would have ground to a halt if you hadn't given, and, and I'm just, I just need you to continue to give or else we cannot continue to do this. He doesn't do that sort of thing. He says, thank you, and now I want to tell you about how to live, how to live in biblical perspective as far as finances go. So he is here instructing them and teaching them. He's teaching them that, that, he says, actually, verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need. So I'm not, I'm not in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul wants to teach them that in any circumstance, any situation, he is to be content. He's learned this. It wasn't instantaneous for him. It was something he learned, and he goes on to describe that. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. These polar opposites. He's learned the secret of dealing with all these different extremes of situation. Being well-fed and being hungry. Being rich and being poor. And he says here at the end, the key is, I can do all things. I can do all things. I'm able to do all things. I'm strong for all things through him who strengthens me. That's the secret Paul has learned. He can do all things through him who strengthens him. This is key for not only Paul, not only for the Philippians, but for us as well. This is God's word preserved for us. 
And I believe God wants to teach some of us how to be content in any and every situation. Perhaps this morning you are not content. Perhaps there's just there's something on the horizon you're striving for, just a little more, and then I'll be happy. God wants to speak to you through his word. This is the bottom line of what I believe Philippians 10 through 13 teaches us. It's this. We will be perfectly content when we learn to find all our strength in the Lord. We will be perfectly content when we learn to find all our strength in the Lord. So let's talk about that. Paul in this section says he's, he's found the secret. He's learned the secret of dealing with the ups and downs of life, the times of plenty, the times of want. He's strengthened through the Lord. Now that truth has a corollary truth that we must recognize. If we're really to value this truth that we're strengthened in the Lord, we must recognize something else first, a corollary truth, and that is that we don't have strength in ourselves. To be strengthened in the Lord, you must first admit that you need strength. You must first admit that you are weak and he is strong. So the first truth is that we must recognize we have a desperate need for strengthening. We are weak. We need strength. And now Paul had learned this. This was not an instantaneous thing for Paul. He says twice he had learned this. And the first instance is a word that means kind of like he had acquired this over time. He had developed this understanding. He had developed this secret He had come to understand this key to life of being content. And if you review his life, you can see that this was perhaps a progressive thing for Paul. If you know the story of Paul early on in his life, I don't think he felt very weak. He had every reason to feel strong. He had every reason to feel able. He grew up in a prestigious family in the city of Tarsus, a prestigious Jewish family that were not only uh, had the heritage of, of Judaism, but were Roman citizens as well. Now, to be a Roman citizen in that day was to be of the elite. Not many people were Roman citizens. And if you were a Roman citizen, it meant that you had all the privileges and all the protection of Rome behind you. It was very prestigious. This is his family growing up. They were probably fairly wealthy, perhaps probably owned a... a Textile business of some sort, a tent-making business. So they were wealthy, they were prestigious, and, and Paul was given the very best education possible. He was sent to Jerusalem and studied under the very best scholars of the day. It would be kind of like perhaps going to Harvard Business School or something like that. He was sent to the best, and he was being groomed to, to be one of the power brokers in the society of the day, in the Jewish nation. He studied under Gamaliel, one of the leading teachers, and he was involved with the persecution of the church. Now, the reason he was involved with that is because he was an important person, and he took upon himself the responsibility of of rooting out this sect that was considered heretical. He was the chief guy, it looks like, in charge of this persecution. So he was a bigwig. He had it all. And he probably felt very strong, very capable. Life was looking good for him. He was on his way up, wealthy, famous, devout, accepted and pleasing to God in his eyes. And then he took a trip to Damascus from Jerusalem. And on that road, he had his world turned upside down. As he encountered 
the living Christ, who spoke to him and revealed to him that the very one who he was seeking to eradicate was the promised Messiah himself, God in flesh, Jesus Christ. And at that moment, I'm sure all that, that sense of strength, that, strength, that sense of, of power was totally eliminated from him as he was humbled and realized how wrong he had been. He was greatly humiliated and humbled at that moment, I'm sure. He recognized, I'm sure, in those moments, his weakness, his desperate need for God's grace and forgiveness. And in those moments, he came to Christ and put his faith in Christ. And then God said to him that he was commissioning him for further difficulty in life. He commissioned him to go to the Gentiles, to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, and promised him a life of hardship. And so Paul went from this place of probably feeling very strong, very confident, had everything, to feeling desperate and weak and ever dependent on God. And as promised, his life was full of hardship. Listen to how he describes some of the incidents in his life in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? Imagine having Paul as your friend and hearing him tell these stories. Would you have anything to say? I think we'd feel a combination of pity and horror. Whoa. And you might not want to talk to Paul anymore because it would just be so awkward to hear about how hard his life was. But it's interesting to realize that Paul did not consider his life a failure at all. His view on these things, his view on these troubles and tribulation was entirely different than how the world might look at it. He understood that these tribulations, these troubles, they taught him, they instructed him how to abandon all self-help, all self-confidence, all self-sufficiency, and depend entirely on God. This is how he learned the secret of being content in any and every situation through the difficulties of life. He says in 2 Corinthians 12 about this, as he prayed about another difficulty, the Lord, it says, as he, the Lord's response, he says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. There's no better place to be than weak. Because when you're weak, you recognize what is the reality, the truth about you. You are weak. I am weak. We are weak. We can do nothing ultimately on our own. 
we are desperately needy of strength from God. And so being weak is a good thing. It's being in the right place. And learning the secret of contentment will mean having to face our weakness and perhaps having to go through trial to understand that we cannot do it on our own so that we become desperate for God and we give up looking to other things for our strength. So let me ask you, is there something or someone besides God you are looking to for strength? Is there something or someone besides God you are looking to for strength in your life? What gives you strength and energy to live your day? What gives you joy? What helps you? What is that thing? Who is it? Is it a possession? Is it a pastime? Is it a relationship? Now, it doesn't have to be something evil. It could be something that's good. But something you look to outside of looking to God. Where do you find your strength? Until you learn to abandon hope in everything else and realize your complete weakness apart from God, you will not find your strength in God. So first we must recognize our need for strength. And the reality that nothing else strengthens us but God. And thank God, he is the one who strengthens. This, this verse, uh, in verse 13, Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's actually one word in the original language. It, it could be translated, through the strengthening one. It characterizes who God is. God is the strengthening one. He is the one who gives strength. Thank God this is who he is. He's the one who gives strength. He's the one who helps those who are weak. He's the one who listens to the pleas of those who are humble and dependent on him. He loves to meet us. And he is a mighty God. He is almighty. He can do all and anything he desires. He spoke a word. He spoke the universe into existence. The universe, the whole universe into existence. The universe is massive and glorious, and it is full of power and matter. It's glorious. He just spoke it, and it came into existence. We, we uh, maybe you don't, but we can cower. I cower sometimes in thunderstorms. Have you ever been in a really, really violent thunderstorm? I remember when as a kid, we were at our uh, summer house down in Plymouth, and for some reason, I don't know if there was something like, iron, extra iron in the ground or what near our house, but we would get some really serious thunderstorms. And, and uh, we had one, I was in bed, but my parents told me what happened. They were in the kitchen, and the lights started flickering in the house. The, the, the field, the electric field, was so powerful near the house that the, it affected the electricity in the house, and lightning bolts were hitting, like, outside the house. And they, they, uh, they came out of the kitchen because they were near the windows, and they gathered us all into the hallway. I can remember. It's a vivid memory as a kid, being in that hallway and just this loud thunder. And I cowered at that. But, but a thunderstorm actually is nothing compared to the power and energy in God's creation, compared to the power in the universe. The sun. Just look at the sun and the power of the sun. Do you know that the sun gives off so much energy, if we could somehow harness it for one second, harness all the energy for one second, it would meet the energy needs of the world for a million years. That's how much power is in the sun. And yet, that's just one star among a hundred 
a thousand billion billion stars. And God just spoke, boop, and there's all that power. He's a mighty God. He can and does do whatever pleases him. He's never limited. He's sovereign over all things. He's mighty, and he's good. He's good. That is good news for us. And we know his goodness ultimately in what he has done in sending his son. Think of it. Almighty God, eternal God, does not need us in the least. But in his great love and mercy and wisdom, he decides to rescue us from our sin. He becomes a man, God the Son, incarnates. And then lives this righteous life this glorious life, worthy of honor. He, he should have, through his, the virtue of his life, been, been made king of all. He was worthy of all. He gave himself up, though. He abased himself, lowered himself for you, for your sins. He went to that cross, and he suffered and died to fulfill the just requirement for the penalty of sin, which is death. He bore the holy, just wrath of God for you, should you choose to trust him. He bore it for you. He paid the penalty to the last drop for you. Why would he care for me? He's a God of mercy. He's good. He's loving. Christ died for our sins and then he rose again on the third day. The father could not allow such heroism of his life and death go unrewarded. He raised him from the dead on the third day and now he has ascended and he reigns and he offers forgiveness and new life to us all, to all who would trust him. God is good and he's for us. If he's given his son, he will take care of everything else. So he's mighty and he's good. He is able to strengthen you and meet you and run your life with all wisdom. He is the one who strengthens us. We need strength. Do you need strength this morning? Do you need his power? Do you need his help? Are you weak? Are you in situations that make you recognize that just you're in over your head? There's nothing you can do. You're at the end of your rope. Are you there? I'm there. Often, I feel like I'm there as a pastor day after day. That's my prayer. Lord, I don't know how to serve well. I need your help. And he loves to answer us. He's mighty and he's good and he strengthens us. Paul had learned the secret of being content by living in this reality that he can do all things, not through his own strength, not through his own wisdom, not through his own sense of stability and security, but through the strengthening one, through the one who strengthens, this almighty one who's good. He learned to face every moment in light of that truth. He is the strengthening one. And now you may ask, well, how? I mean, I like this idea. I need some of it. But is it just an idea? How does it work? Well, let me spend the remaining time talking about how and then the results. How he strengthens us. Now, I could go through the scriptures and there's lots of things to say about how he strengthens us. But I just want to talk about three simple ways. First, God strengthens us through his promises. He is a God who promises much to his people. 
Some uh, have counted the promises in Scripture, and, and they have numbered them over 3,500 promises to God's people in Scripture. He's a God who loves to promise and loves to fulfill those promises. The first and foremost of his promises is this, that we are forgiven to all who trust him. We are forgiven and made sons and daughters. To all who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. That's the greatest promise there is. Because your biggest problem, my biggest problem, is that in our natural state, we are cut off from God. We are sinners. We have this crazy disposition of rebellion against God. We are like addicts, constantly tormented by an insane desire to satisfy ourselves and that which destroys us. Sin. And we are prisoners and sin left to ourselves. And yet God gave his son for us, died for us, died on the cross, offered complete forgiveness, offers complete forgiveness to you today, and rose again victorious over sin and death, guaranteeing that promise. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved from what? Your sin. You will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. With the mouth one confesses and is saved. And all you need to do is say, Lord, save me. I don't want to sin anymore. I want forgiveness. I want to know you. I want to follow you. Save me. Confess with your mouth. Tell someone about it. Pray with someone. And if... if if you are a believer and you've confessed and believed and have not been baptized, baptism is, is an important way to express that. And we are planning to, to do a baptism late summer, early fall. So come and talk to me about that. He offers forgiveness to us, reconciliation to know him, to belong to him, to be loved by him, to be in his presence forever. That is the most important promise and the most glorious promise, to stand before God reconciled to him, at peace with God. And if you are a believer, you live in that promise right now. Your greatest problem is taken care of. Everything else is just nothing compared to your greatest problem. There's no problem that can compare to the problem of being cut off from God. And through Christ, through faith in Christ, you are reconciled to him. So that promise of forgiveness it's how he strengthens us. As we live in that promise, as we live in that truth, as we live in the perspective that it brings. There's other promises too in Scripture. Oh, there's so many promises. There's the promise of eternity with the Lord and eternal bliss, free from sin and sickness and death. This is a promise guaranteed by the resurrection of Christ. Christ's resurrection is a first fruit. It's the prototype. It's, it's the beta model. It's the trailer to the movie. For the believer, if you put your faith in Christ, you're forgiven and that same resurrection life is yours and it will be done one day when you go to be with the Lord. You'll be with him in heaven and then when Christ returns, there'll be a new heaven and a new earth and we'll all be like Christ. We'll be with him forever in this new creation. No more sickness, no more death, no more sorrow. This is a promise from God for us that changes our lives. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. For the believer, it only gets better. It only gets better. 
to live in light of this. I, I think of it kind of like this. Imagine, imagine this week, it's Friday, and you're, you're going to a wedding rehearsal, and you're going out to eat for the rehearsal dinner at your favorite restaurant. Just pick one, whatever yours is. My, I thought of Mama, Mama, uh, Mama Mia's, right, in the North End, a great Italian restaurant. Um, so just imagine you're, you're going to go there, and you're going to be with your family and your friends, and you're going to get to eat. It's going to be a feast, and you don't have to pay for any of it. You get to order anything you want. And it's Friday, Friday morning you wake up, and you know you're going there. You're going to have this feast at the end of the day. How does it affect how you live your day that day? Do you wake up in the morning knowing you're going to have this feast and think, man, there's just nothing to eat for breakfast here every morning, nothing to eat but toast. This stinks. I hate toast. I, w- I wouldn't be doing that, I don't think. I, I think, I don't know about you, maybe you love feasting all day long, but for me, I could even go hungry during the day and not eat because I knew I was going to feast that night. Can I have this great feast? I would be able to get by. I wouldn't be complaining about not having something good for lunch or whatever. Well, there's a great feast that awaits us on the final day. And it's soon. And we're going to get to eat and enjoy that forever. And when we live in light of that, this eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, then we start to look at the difficulties of life, the times of hunger and want as light, momentary affliction in light of that. And so the promise of this feast for us strengthens us for the day until it comes. Lots of other promises in Scripture. Scripture is full of wonderful promises I'll do one more. Romans 8, 28. Great promise. It says this. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. So for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose, that means his people, those who have been called by God, have put their faith in him. It says God works all things together for their good. All things. Now, That's an amazing promise. It doesn't mean that all things are good. It doesn't mean that life is going to be good. It doesn't mean that the life of his good bumper sticker applies to everything. It doesn't mean that life sometimes stinks. Life is hard, and it can be very hard at times. And that's not what this verse is saying. This isn't a promise to you to, to work good always. In other words, everything is good. It's to work all things together for good. In other words, God is over your life as a believer, orchestrating all that goes on, even using the evil bad things in his purpose to work good in your life eventually. And if you read the the verse in context, you see that the ultimate good is to be like Jesus, to be conformed to the image of Jesus to be changed, to be like Jesus. And and in light of our verse in Philippians 4 today, I could describe Jesus this way. He was supremely content in the Lord. And so the good that he's working in your life through all things is to work supreme satisfaction and contentment in God. And then to have that fulfilled when you go to be with the Lord. He's working good in your life. He's working good through the hard things. There was a story I heard in Alpha recently. One of the guys shared this story that I thought was a good picture of this reality, of this wonderful promise that we can live in. It goes this way. 
A missionary was once traveling in the Far East when he came across a booth in a marketplace. It was a tapestry maker's booth. As he walked by, he saw a strange sight. A man was standing in front of the booth, and it seemed that the man was shouting directly at the loom, which was located near the back of the booth. As he shouted, threads appeared in the tapestry almost by magic. The missionary asked his guide for an explanation, and the guide said, the man you see is a master weaver. He is speaking to his apprentice back behind the loom, out of sight. He is telling him what color thread to use and where to put it. Only the master weaver knows the entire design, so it's vital that the apprentice does what the master tells him to. The missionary asked, does the apprentice ever make a mistake? And the guide said, oh, of course, but the master weaver is wise and gracious. And being a great artist, he simply works the mistake into the design. How much is that like God? We cannot see the pattern of the tapestry God is weaving in our lives. We're on the other side of the loom looking at knotted and tangled threads placed seemingly without purpose. Occasionally we catch a glimpse of the design, but as soon as we think we understand it, the master calls for another thread, which seems to change everything. So we have to trust the master weaver, that he knows what he is doing. And like the apprentice, we will make mistakes. We'll put in a red thread instead of a violet one. We'll knot it in the wrong place or place it in a crooked way. And God, in his mercy and wisdom, takes our mistakes and makes it part of the entire design. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purposes. God strengthens us through these promises. We learn to live by these promises in life. He strengthens us through practices as well. He gives us certain practices, certain things to do that are helpful. Now, the practices themselves offer no strength in and of themselves, but they serve as conduits to experience the strength of God. And one of those practices is reading, studying, memorizing, thinking about, meditating, and listening to the Word of God, listening to the Word of God preached. It's a practice he's given us. This word is living and active. It ministers to us. It's God's very word. And he speaks to us through his word, and he strengthens us through his word. We need his word. We need regular input of his word. We need to read it. We need to hear it preached. We need to talk about it together. We need to study it and memorize it and meditate on portions of it. The practice of Getting into God's word, it's one way he strengthens us. Second, he strengthens us through prayer. He's given us this gift of prayer to pray, to bring before him our thanksgiving and our worship and to cast our burdens on him, to say, Lord, here's my burden for today. Help me. He helps us in the practice of prayer. He helps us through the practice of biblical fellowship, getting around others and building relationships with others and talking about these promises together, listening to one another. Confessing our weakness and our struggles to one another. This is so important. You, you can't experience his strength, and you won't. God, I, I believe God will see to it that you don't, by his design, experience strength in isolation. So if you're here today and you're isolated and you're thinking you can do the Christian life on your own, you're wrong. Yes, God can sustain you, but it's not what he's going to prefer to do. I know in my own life I can look at points where I was isolated and I suffered for it. God has given us the gift of the body of Christ. 
to have fellowship, to come around together, to be strengthened by one another. That's why we do small groups, and that's why we make such a big deal about small groups. Because we need the strength that comes from that relationship, those, that fellowship we have together. Finally, another area, among others, that strengthen us, another practice is sharing what you have, sharing your faith and life with others. Philemon 6 says this, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. The sharing of your faith, the giving away of what you have to others. What does it do, according to Philemon 6? It gives us a full knowledge of what we have. Isn't that wild? We give it away, and we find out what we have by giving it away. And if you just keep it, if you just keep to yourself, you don't share your gifts, you don't share the gospel with others, you don't evangelize, you don't reach out in mercy, if you keep it in, it's going gonna, it's gonna to rot. It's going to rot on the vine, and it won't be precious to you. But as you give it away, as you give your, way a life, uh, your life away in service and evangelism, giving, sharing your faith and your life with others, you will come to a full understanding of all that you have in Christ. It will strengthen you as you do that. That's God's design. These are some practices that strengthen us. Finally, God's presence, his very presence, strengthens us. He lives in us. This mighty God, think of it. This mighty God who spoke and the universe was created, he dwells in you. He dwells in me. He lives in me. This infinitely glorious God lives in me. And he dwells among us when we gather together. He's here. He's here right now. And we experience him. We experience him Sunday after Sunday. I through the, the worship, as we sing and worship according to his word, he's there with us. We are often touched by him, his love and his truth. He brings conviction. He brings encouragement. As we share communion together at times, we experience his presence. There's, there's a palpable experience of his nearness. Perhaps as we hear God's word preached as well, we experience his presence. And this is not just something for Sundays, as important as Sundays are and as unique as they are. There's a unique experience of the presence of God on Sundays that I don't believe we can regularly reproduce or experience elsewhere. But we are to experience his presence elsewhere. We're to live a life ever before him. His presence in all things. It might be just during the day as you're working and going about mundane tasks, just those moments of, Lord, help me. I need your strength right now. I'm going to talk to this guy at work, and he's always a difficult person to talk to. Would you help me? And you go in, and you, and you, you meet with this person, and, and suddenly you find words to say that you don't normally have, and you experience God's presence in those moments. Or you go reach out to your neighbor, and you're thinking, I, Lord, I, I hate doing this. I always feel so goofy, but I know my neighbor needs to know your love. And, and I'm the agent for that. So would you help me? And you go and you, you pray and you bring the cookies and you find yourself welcomed in and you have, end up having a conversation and you get to share your testimony with your neighbor. And you experience the presence of God in those moments. We are live life in this reality of the presence of God with us. And we are to relate to all things in light of this truth. This transforms how we look at things. When we look at 
things, finances, material things, in light of the presence of God, in light of walking with God, it changes how we relate to those things. When we, are, when we enjoy those things for God's sake, in relationship with him, it transforms that. And all of a sudden, where before we thought just a little more money, just a little bigger house, just a little bit better location, in the Lord it starts to be, Lord, thank you for this house. I love this house. This is your gift to me. I get to live here. Thank you for this job. This is great. I am content in this. Thank you for the difficulty in this job because I know you're working good in my life and you're with me. It transforms everything when we live in light of the presence of God. Perhaps an illustration would help. Imagine a, a poor girl, poor family, but a family full of love. And in this family, her parents are poor, but they love this daughter greatly. And she loves them, and she's secure in their love, and it's everything to her. And Christmas time comes around, and they can't afford much for her. And yet her mom knits her mittens. And on Christmas Day, that's the only gift she gets, mittens from her mom. Not very much, perhaps would be prone to complain, but, but because she knows her parents love her, she's secure in that love, those mittens are worth a million dollars to her. Those are the mittens that mom made. And so she wears those mittens and enjoys those mittens in a wonderful way, though it's nothing. It's living in want. It's being abased. It's being low. It's just mittens. Yet, yet she's content in those mittens because they're from her mother who loves her. They're worth a million dollars. Now think of a a young a daughter in a very wealthy family, in a wonderful family. You can be a very wonderful family and be very wealthy, by the way. Um, they're, they're not contrary. So imagine a very wealthy family, and they're full of love for this daughter. They're the same thing. And, and she knows how much she's loved, and, and her parents are everything, and her, love for, her parents love her so much. And, and Christmas comes around, and she turns 15 and a half in the state of New Hampshire, and so her parents buy her a brand new car. But for her, that car is worth the same as the mittens because it's from her parents. And it's not so much that it's a car, it's a big, huge, expensive gift. It's her parents' gift to her. This is what Paul's talking about. He's learned to live in the Lord content, whether well-fed or hungry, because he lives life in light of the Lord. So everything is enjoyed for the Lord's sake. And it, it just normalizes, it flattens everything. It just doesn't matter as much whether I'm wealthy or poor, because I have God and I know him. And so I'm content in every, in every situation. That was Paul's perspective. That's what... God is calling us to this morning through his word. To learn the secret of being content in every situation because God is our strength. God is the one who strengthens us. So Paul says he's learned this and he's learned it whether his belly is full of filet mignon or just hunger growls. Whether he's treated as dirt or he's rich as a king. He lives with this attitude of contentment in the Lord. How about you? Are you content? Are you content in the Lord no matter what? No matter whether you're well-fed or hungry, you're rich or poor, are you content? Have you learned this lesson, this secret to life? 
Are you being strengthened by the Lord through his promises and his presence and these practices? Are you being strengthened in the Lord or is something else making you happy? As the band comes up, just want to ask you to think about that and what that thing might be. Is there something that you think, just a little more of this and I'll be happy? Just a little more of this thing, this relationship, this possession, and then I'll be happy. What is that thing? God's calling you to abandon hope in that thing. And to put your hope in him. To recognize your weakness, your need, and to turn to him. And find your strength in him. To put your faith in the one who strengthens. To ground yourself on his promises to enjoy his presence, to walk in these practices he has given you. So before we close in song, just, let's just take a minute to prayerfully go before the Lord, to think about that one thing, to ask the Lord to help you give up that thing, to put your hope in his strength, and to find contentment even this morning.